Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show. You know, the basic law of physics in the Middle East is that for every action, there's a reaction. The U.S. is already part of a regional war in the Middle East. But as this weekend's deadly drone strike shows, things can always escalate further. Monday, January 29th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WVUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, men and women have increasingly divergent political views, according to a new global survey. And maybe not coincidentally, women still get paid less than men, even though a law passed on Obama's first day in office was supposed to help fix that. What does Lily Ledbetter think of the Fair Pay Act named after her? That's one of the reasons I have stayed in this battle is because it not only affected my income during those years of working and my children and my family, but it affected my retirement, my 401k, and today Mm. my Social Security. They're all shortchanged. Before we get to that, though, the wider conflict in the Middle East that many worried could grow out of Israel's U.S.-backed war in Gaza? It's been here, but this weekend's attack that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan is the first time American troops have been killed by enemy fire in the Middle East since the beginning of that Gaza war. President Biden promised to hold those responsible for the attack to account, but they still haven't said specifically who that is or how they plan to respond. The Islamic resistance in Iraq has claimed responsibility, but that doesn't actually clear things up very much. They're a loose coalition of militias in the region that has attacked U.S. troops before. This time, they targeted a somewhat secretive base called Tower 22 at the northeastern tip of Jordan, where the country's borders meet Syria and Iraq. The group opposes U.S. support for Israel, and they're backed by Iran. For more on the attack, we called up Brian Katulis. He's a senior fellow and vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute. Here's his conversation with Deepa Fernandez. I expect they may target some more leaders of these militias, as they did uh, recently in recent weeks. Um, The challenge here is that there's been more than 170 attacks on various U.S. troop presences around the region. This one took place in northeastern Jordan. There have been attacks in Iraq and in Syria, where we have troops as well. Mm. And uh, the U.S. has been slow to respond and quite measured in its response. Um, It has typically targeted capacities, meaning uh, weapons, depots, and things like this. But it it did start to turn to the leadership of some of these groups and to target them. Some have also proposed targeting some of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps leaders from Iran who are in the region. 
causing some problems, but that would be deeply, you know, very escalatory and, and I, could I, get America uh, into a bigger war. Just to be clear here, when you say target, you mean a, mil- a, a precise military strike on the leaders that they believe to be responsible. Yeah, similar to what the United States did for years in the campaign against al-Qaeda, as well as the Islamic State, uh, the U.S. has started to take some steps in this direction against these militias. Um, we also see in a different theater in Yemen, uh, Houthis that also receive backing from Iran uh, being subjected to these similar attacks. But um, you're, you're absolutely right that they need to strike the right balance here so as to not uh, get America uh, on the pathway to a to a wider regional war. Mm, I mean, there there is calls, you know, from Republican lawmakers urging Biden to to retaliate. As such, your president and CEO wrote today that the conflict could increase quickly unless there was, in his words, sharp progress to reverse course. What are some of those steps, possibly for de-escalation? Well, one of the steps would be some sort of gesture on the part of Iran which leads this network of uh, proxies from Hezbollah and Lebanon to these militias in Iraq and Syria to essentially say, look, let's reel this in. Let's pull this back. It's been done before. If you recall, at the end of November of last year, when there was a temporary ceasefire in Gaza between Israel and Hamas, by and large, there was a certain degree of regional quiet. Um, And there's a capacity, I think, to pull this back in. So that would be one gesture. I think another important gesture are the things that aren't being done to resolve that conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, Hamas in particular. Um, Since the war has been uh, started in October 7th with Hamas's attack on Israel, um, there have been a lot of concern across the region about how the civilian deaths of uh, Palestinians, women and children, are inflaming all sorts of groups across the region and destabilizing it. So the efforts that Bill Burns, the CIA director, has been involved with to try to get to a more permanent ceasefire, I think are also very important to de-escalate. U.S. intelligence officials say Iran is essentially using its proxy forces to keep up pressure on the U.S. and Israel. I should say that Iranian leaders have denied giving orders for this attack. What role here and and how would this further escalate the conflict or this escalating conflict? How how does that serve Iran? Well, Iran essentially has this strategy of trying to defend itself and its regime uh, from threats from uh, outside uh, by projecting power through these networks. These networks, these proxy groups, provide them a plausible deniability, or so they think. There may be some intel that... uh, that, that uh, connects them in some sort of way to some of these attacks across the region. So a, a key part of this, of what motivates Iran in this, is to basically stay in power. Um, if you saw in the last uh, few weeks as well, Iran sent ballistic cruise missiles into Iraq, Syria, and Pakistan. And all of these signs show uh, indicate to me that I think the regime itself feels rather insecure about its own position in in a region that's uh, facing a lot of turmoil, and I think okay. uh, the the key driver here is to try to protect themselves from any attacks uh, externally. And what would a, a ramped up U.S. response mean for the war in Gaza? Does this latest attack make it more difficult to bring that war to a conclusion? I think it could complicate these ongoing negotiations to try to get hostages being held um, in Gaza. Uh, by Hamas, uh, it could complicate those efforts to get a ceasefire as well, because 
you know, the basic law of physics in the Middle East is that for every action, there's a reaction. And um, every step towards de-escalation is sometimes met by escalatory moves by groups, uh, often non-state actors and terror groups, that simply want to avoid uh, pathway to progress to, towards peace and stability. Part of what I think motivated Hamas attacking Israel on October 7th as well was the signs that Israel and Saudi Arabia we're, we're yeah. going to move towards some sort of normalization accord. So that's that's the tricky balance. For every step forward, there's often sometimes steps backwards. Brian Katula, Senior Fellow and Vice President of Policy at the Middle East Institute. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Katulis mentioned that everything in the Middle East ricochets around the region in some way. And this is all, of course, tied back to the war in Gaza. On Friday, the International Court of Justice issued a preliminary ruling on South Africa's case accusing Israel of committing genocide against Palestinians. The court stopped short of demanding a ceasefire, but the ICJ did order Israel to do more to protect civilians and report back in a month. For some reaction to the ruling, we called up human rights attorney and Rutgers professor Nura Erekat. She told Scott Tong the court found plausible reason to believe Israel could be violating the Genocide Convention. This is not merely a ugly war with a high level of civilian casualties, but that this is probably a genocidal campaign that is not meant to achieve Israel's military advantage, but is meant to destroy the Palestinian people in Gaza. And so they need to be on notice and need to do everything within their power to prevent that from happening, which is why the remedies that the court issued are are exactly to that point. Israel shall cease from engaging in anything that's genocidal, the killing of the members of the group, the creating of the conditions that would lead to the destruction of the members of the group, the actual entrance of humanitarian aid to sustain the members of this group. And so the international community at this point is on notice because if they do not abide by that, they may not just be aiding in what they think is a war effort. They may be complicit in genocide. I understand. And and we should note that uh, the uh, Israeli side, of course, uh, denied that it it had any genocidal intent. That was one of the arguments it put uh, before the, the tribunal. I want to ask you about the practical implications Uh, of this. On one hand, it does not call for an immediate ceasefire. But you've called this process a significant tool of accountability against Israel, and some observers are already seeing changes in Israel's behavior in delivering aid, in punishing extremists and uh, dehumanizing language. You know, I'm going to lift up the language of the South African legal team. And I think that they said it best, that this is a ceasefire in everything but name. By demanding that Israel not participate and not continue in genocide or those things that will continue genocide, which includes the you know killing of the members of the group, which includes you know the means by which you can destroy, create the conditions to destroy the members of that group. You know, it really is put to the Israelis if this is the only way that you can conduct your campaign, then you cannot conduct it at all. Uh, Nora, how do you read the various reactions? among Palestinians, some we know feel it, it, this ruling did not go far enough. 
I'm completely sympathetic to the Palestinian reactions that are very disappointed in the ICJ ruling. I think there's two parts of this. On the one hand, the Palestinians are waiting for someone or something to be able to impose a ceasefire. So there may have been an undue expectation in the ICJ's capacity to actually do that. On the other hand, it's very real that they would be upset if you found that it's plausible um, genocide taking place and yet you failed to call for a ceasefire. Why did you stop short of doing that? And I think that, that that's very understandable, but also has to do with a tremendous amount of legal questions regarding the legality of Israel's operation at all. In international law, is as stated by the ICJ in 2004, Israel doesn't have the right to use armed force or self-defense against the territory that it occupies. The ICC affirmed that the Gaza Strip remains occupied as of 2014. And so perhaps the court was not ready to wade into that question and why they sidestepped it. We don't know. That's all conjecture. But the outcome is that this is where we're at. And what we did get was a ruling that was a ceasefire in everything but name. Yeah. Um, Finally, I just want to put in an opposite reaction to you and to get your thoughts. Ruth Marcus, associate editor for The Washington Post, she calls herself a proud Jew and Zionist who does not support the government of Netanyahu. She writes... In her response to this ruling, she writes, Hamas is responsible for the barbaric attack. Israel was amply justified in responding to prevent future slaughter. Second, Hamas is responsible for the terrible scope of civilian casualties, having deliberately embedded itself within the civilian population in Gaza. Keep in mind, none of this would be happening were it not for Hamas, end quote. Your thoughts? If Hamas were to disappear... Completely. And if it were never even created, Israel would still be targeting Palestinians, targeting them for their land, removing them, dispossessing them and forcibly exiling them as they are in Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, as they are in Huwara, as they are throughout the West Bank and even within Israel itself um, in the Negev, as well as the Galilee. And finally, these accusations of human shielding have not been yielded. We have to be much more scrutinizing when there is no evidence, when Israel says that there was a command and control center between Al-Shifa Hospital, gutted the hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza, and yet there is no command and control center. We have before our very eyes the disintegration of what has become a talking point that no one is taking head on. We've been speaking to Noura Arakat, Palestinian-American human rights attorney, activist, and associate professor at Rutgers University. Noura, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me, Scott. As always, for more on the war, head to npr.org slash updates. going to take a short break now, but when we return, Scott has a conversation with Lily Ledbetter. Her name is immortalized on a piece of legislation also known as the Fair Pay Act. It's been 15 years since that went into law, but women still make less than men on average. Why that is, and what might help finally close the gender pay gap after the break. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. 
This episode's sponsor is PwC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Fifteen years ago today, President Obama signed his first bill into law. It was called the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. It's named for an Alabama woman who worked at a tire factory and learned she was paid a lot less than men with the same job. Lilly Ledbetter sued, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled against her, saying she filed her case too late. Then Congress took up the cause, and two years later, in 2009, passed a law expanding the time window for workers to sue over pay discrimination. Now, to help ensure gender pay equity, several states have pay transparency laws now. They require employers to disclose pay and salary ranges. So let's talk now to the aforementioned Lily Ledbetter, equal pay advocate. Lily, welcome to Here and Now. Thank you for having me. And also, Fatima Goss-Graves is with us. She's president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. Welcome to you. So happy to be here. Fatima, let me start with you. Fifteen years after this law, we still have a gender pay gap. Back in 2009, on average, a woman earned 77 cents for every dollar a man earned. Now it's about 84 cents. So right now, are you encouraged or discouraged? I'd say both. I am encouraged by any progress, of course. The wage gap has shrunk slightly. And for most groups of women, that is true. That is true for Black women, for Mm. Latina women, for API women. And at the same time, it is extremely slow progress. In 15 Mm. years to improve by only a few cents. Yeah. That's not where we should be in this country. Yeah, I understand. And we'll talk about uh, solutions and where we go from here. Lily, your name is on this fair pay law. Remind us of your story. Some of us have not heard it. After years and years of working at the Goodyear Tire Plant in Alabama, somebody slipped you a note. Is that right? And then you realize, my goodness, I'm making a lot less than many men here? That's correct. I went in for an evening shift, 12 hours. And that note was in my box at work. When I read it, the first thing, my heart just stopped almost because I knew it was correct. And me and those three men that was listed on that note, we four had the exact same job. And I was making about 35 to 40 percent at that time less than they were. I just could not believe it. I was devastated, humiliated all at once. Mm. And it just floored me. Now, at the time, were you allowed to talk to your colleagues about salaries? How much do you make? How much do you make? Absolutely not. In fact, when I went to work with uh, Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, they told me in personnel, never discuss your pay with any co-worker. If you do, you will not have a job here. Oh, my goodness. So you, 
You took the company to court. Uh, We've mentioned this. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled against you. But, of course, Congress acted. Uh, President Obama signed the law that bears your name. Lily, how do you see the progress now? Does it still take workers willing to talk to one another and learn what their colleagues make in order to discover any problems? It is hard for women to discover exactly how they stand, but it is a little easier than back when I was working. Corporations and employers need to post their job salaries so that people can have an idea of where they stand. But the thing that discouraged me so much when I learned how much less I made, and that's one of the reasons I have stayed in this battle, is because it not only affected my income during those years of working and my children and my family, but it affected my retirement, my 401k, my contributory retirement, my Goodyear retirement, and today Mm. my Social Security. They're all shortchanged. Yeah, it all adds up. Well, Fatima, let's talk about companies sharing information about salary. In recent years, many states have passed these transparency laws requiring employers to give out some of this information. Indeed.com now says nearly half of their listings show pay range. Is this starting to become a norm? I think it's an expectation. We have about 10 states that have made formal changes to their laws. Mm. In some of those states, you have to post the range. Others, you have to actually give the information at some point during the process. But we also know that employees and prospective candidates, they expect to have this information. Mm. They're now starting to say, what does it tell me if I'm applying to a company and they want to keep it in the dark? Yeah. And and what about the companies? Is there a benefit to employers or are some of them, you know, holding their noses and only revealing it when they have to? Well, there's always resistance somewhere, but what we know is that there are benefits to employers too. That way they don't waste their time. They don't get far down a hiring process and find out they're totally mismatched. And also it's a good check on inadvertent pay disparities. You wouldn't want a situation where they set a target and then in the end they find out they're paying men one wage, women another wage, and they're accountable on the other side. Yeah. Now, I've read that in some cases the listed salary range is so wide that's not really realistic. Are we seeing a lot of that? You know, we're seeing some people try to skirt the issue by doing that. But actually, we're also seeing people give real ranges Mm. and medians and targets. And so if you think about it, Lily's company said you can't talk about pay at all. They were totally in the dark. So to be in a place where it's more transparent, I think that's the direction we're heading. Yeah. So, Lily, when you talk to workers who wonder if they're being underpaid relative to their counterparts who do the same thing, they think about what they can do about it. They're they're searching for information. And, of course, they're a little worried, right, to challenge management if they want to bring this up. What advice do you give them? I tell them to be careful but to investigate. And often times I encourage young workers when they start with a company or on a new job to find a mentor. If they can find someone within the workforce that they can trust, oftentimes that helps. Today, we have the computers, we have all the research. A lot of times we know exactly what some corporations are paying, but they still do not compensate the women workers like they should. And Fatima, I want to ask about 
something that Lily mentioned that if you're underpaid relative to a man who does the same job, this this adds up. And I'm so grateful for Lily continuing to tell that story. Because if you think about it, the day-to-day, you're short on groceries. It's harder to buy childcare. Over the course of the lifetime, depending on the type of woman, you may lose over a million dollars to pay discrimination, pay disparities that compound. It'll be in their retirement. It will be in their ability to retire at the point they want. You see Mm. people working long after they should be. A solution is actually addressing it at the front end, paying people right the first time. Yeah. Uh, Lily, if I can ask for the last word from you. Here we are 15 years on from the law bearing your name being signed. When you think about your hopes for the next generation of working women 15 years from today, where do you think we'll be? Where do you hope we'll be? We must move more aggressively than we have in the last 15 years for equal pay. But I hope in my lifetime, before I check out of this life, that I can see women in this country being paid equitably compared to their male counterparts. It's a great booster for the families of the country because when people are compensated fairly and equitably, the families are stronger and better educated and better health. And it's just better for the communities and the nation. And I'm curious, have you been in a tire factory uh, in recent years at all? I, I'm, I'm just curious if you think, boy, I, I think the situation's better now. You know, I have not. But uh, <laughs> when the uh, plant where I worked had their 75 anniversary, they didn't invite me, maybe uh, because I had sued them. But, uh, you know, they said I was a poor performer. The reason I didn't get the rightful pay is what they said at trial. But Here's the deal. I live in Alabama. We're an at-will state, and they could have let me go if I'd have been a poor performer. But I was a good performer because I was handpicked as one of the people to start up a light truck radio division of that factory. And that was quite an honor. Lily Ledbetter is an equal pay advocate. The Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act bears her name. Thank you, Lily, for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for passing the word, and we'll help somebody with this message today. We've also been speaking to Fatima Grosgraves, President and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. Fatima, thanks to you. Thanks so much. Staying with gender politics, there's new data about young voters that suggests people under 30 hold increasingly polarized political views depending on their gender. And not just in the U.S., In fact, the trend was most pronounced in South Korea. Deepa has more on why and what it means after this. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Since the rise of the Me Too movement in 2017, young women have become more liberal. But young men, not so much. Usually men and women of previous generations have held closer political beliefs, but Generation Z appears to be bucking that trend in countries around the world. The Atlantic's Derek Thompson has been looking into the data and he joins us now. Derek, welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. So the data you're looking at comes from the Financial Times, which shows a huge ideological gap between young men and women. What kinds of issues are driving this divide between the genders in Gen Z? It's mostly cultural issues. The differences between young men and young women don't seem to be driven by their views on the economy. They seem to be driven by their views on things like immigration, women's role in the workplace, preferences for you know wives and what wives should do at home, hmm. the degree to which uh, a wife uh, should look forward to a career just as much as her husband. I think one thing we've really seen is that in the last few decades, it's very clear when you look at the economic data that women play a much larger role in our economy than they did in the 1940s, 1950s. And in fact, if you look at college specifically, three women graduate for every two men today. So women are a majority of college graduates. And I think that one thing we're seeing potentially is that this really important revolution that women have had in the workforce in the last few decades seems to be having some kind of backlash effect among some young hmm. conservative men. I do think that's a major factor here. Okay. And there's evidence that this is happening across the world, um, you know, regardless of, of cultural country. Why? It's probably a slightly different story depending on where you look, but I think you're absolutely right to point out that it does it is happening in many different countries simultaneously. Uh, you are seeing diverging uh, liberal views between women and men. That is, women getting much more liberal and men often getting a little bit more conservative in the U.S., in the U.K., in Germany, in China, across countries in Africa and Tunisia, and mm. especially in South Korea. I did a podcast episode for my show, Plain English, where I looked at what's happening in South Korea. And what's happening there seems to be really, really interesting. Women in South Korea, young women have gotten much more liberal. And it seems like men are almost pulling back from society to a certain extent. Men are much more likely to be more insular, uh, more play more games inside, talk to a community almost exclusively of men. And mm. you could almost that in terms of their internet participation, they're being algorithmically segregated 
women spending much more time talking online to women, men spending much more time online talking to men. That seems to be driving it as well. And South Korea, interestingly, also happens to have a falling marriage rate and the world's lowest birth rate. But Derek, I want to ask you about the polarization here in the United States, because some data sets don't show it's that great. What kind of nuance Mm. is there in these numbers? I would say, number one, it's really difficult to figure out what millions of people are thinking about really contentious issues. It's possible that their views are changing year by year. It's possible that the framing of certain uh, sentences changes how people respond to it. But here's what we know. Uh, Daniel Cox at AEI and the Survey Center on American Life, he has seen gender divergences in ideology. If you look at Gallup poll social series, that also shows a gender divergence. If you look at other surveys, like the general social survey, the GSS, that does not necessarily show a divergence uh, in ideology. So it's like some surveys show this this, this opening gap in the US, some do not. But I think it's important to say that around the world, many different surveys seem to be showing that women are getting much more liberal and men are getting a little bit more conservative. So so let me then ask you to a point you made right at the beginning about, about this backlash um, against women, you know, graduating college more, being, being much more present, maybe getting more equal salaries. One of the people who represents that is an influence, an influencer on social media, a man called Andrew Tate. Here he mm-hmm. is in a YouTube interview. There's a correlation between people who are free thinkers and people who have opinions which differ from the norm and their testosterone levels. But the higher your testosterone level, the more likely you are to stand up and say something that the group doesn't agree with. Now, Tate's also facing rape and sexual trafficking charges, we should say. But he speaks to a generation of young men who themselves are feeling left behind. I've heard it called empathy. I'm wondering how much people like Tate and other social media personalities are influencing the political divisions of Gen Z. They're clearly influential. They have millions of followers, people like Tate and other people in the so-called manosphere. The question is what's driving what? Is Tate popular because there's an enormous demand for people like him? Or is he and other people like him responsible for driving the change Mm. that we're seeing among young men? I would also say that it's important, you know, I, I, I consider myself to be relatively progressive. But if you look at these charts, it is important to point out that women are becoming more liberal than men are becoming conservative. And so while I think it's absolutely important to point out that people like Tate might be driving men to become a little bit more conservative, we should also ask, you know, why are women becoming more liberal? I think that's a fair question as well. The Atlantic's Derek Thompson joining us on Skype. Thank you. Thank you. That's our show. Here and Now Anytime comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Hafsa Qureshi, James Marino, and Julia Corcoran. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Michaela Varela. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin, and the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? These are all things parents ask when they home shop. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools. Homes.com. We've done your homework. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.